Hey, Green Rush Nation producer Shake Gunther here with a quick programming note. As you may have guessed, we don't have a regular episode of the Green Rush this week, but instead are running an entirely different show produced by friend of the show, Dr. Jahan Marku, a longtime regular on my weekly podcast, Marijuana Today. Jahan's show is called How to Launch an Industry and focuses not only on more of the science and research side of marijuana, but also dives more fully into the nascent world of psychedelics. You can check out How to Launch an Industry on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you find your shows just by searching for the term How to Launch an Industry. We'll be back with a regular episode of The Green Rush next week. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Mark Hu and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, we are joined by Dr. Nigga Marora. Hello, everyone. Also joining us is our resident GMP expert, David Valencourt from the GMP Collective. It's great to be here again today, guys. And we uh, are joined by two incredibly smart people, uh, Kim Napoli, the Council and Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Vicente Cedarberg. Great to be back. Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure. And joining us for the first time is Mark Ross, Council and Head of Impact and ESG at Vicente Cedarberg. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Well, listener, we have a great show for you today. For our popular literature and news articles, we'll be discussing the FDA's objection to an application for CBD to be sold as a dietary ingredient. We'll be discussing an, a blog article on environmental social governance, the perfect storm for cannabis, written by Mark Ross, of course. Can't wait to put him in the hot seat on that one. And uh, we'll also be discussing the future of mushroom shops uh, reaching the Americas. So will we see smart shops in the Western Hemisphere? Uh, for Rapid Fire Science, we'll be discussing an article by Mitch Earlywine as a lead author on cannabis-induced oceanic boundlessness, um, exploring the cannabis-like psychedelic effects that might be induced under clinical settings. And also, we'll be discussing cannabis use in pediatric cancer patients. What are they reading? A review of the online literature. And we'll also end today's show with a game where we'll test your knowledge about data from a study on blunt use. All right, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular literature articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So there's been a lot of discussion about the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's objection to an application for a CBD product to be sold as a dietary ingredient. Some say this is leaving a cloud of uncertainty over the booming industry. 
However, you know, having spent 10 or 15 years, sometimes it's hard to remember in this industry, I don't feel surprised by this, um, you know, re- objection by the FDA to this application, but maybe I'm missing something here. Um, I'd like to go to you, Mark, you know, you, you work at a law firm uh, that specializes in cannabis law. Is there something here that was surprising for folks or was this just sort of, you know, as to be expected? First off, I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm not an FDA attorney. I've never um, interfaced with the FDA. Um, so I don't know how they go about doing business. I have uh, worked tangentially um, alongside of Charlotte's Web on some matters. And, um, you know, usually there's, I mean, they're a publicly traded company. They're a B Corp. They're usually, their their stuff is top notch. Uh, the FDA had two years to study this. And it, it blows my mind. And it almost seems to me like an abdication of their duty to protect the health and safety of the American citizen, citizenry. Uh, we have CBD products. Uh, I've got to imagine they're in all 50 states now in some way, shape, or form proliferating the marketplace, uh, the consumer marketplace. And for the FDA not to make headway on this issue in the last couple of years while they were reviewing um, and disregarding peer-reviewed toxicology and safety studies, it just, it blows my mind. Uh, I don't know what we need to do as citizens or as practitioners to get them to move off this uh, and make some decisions. Uh, I'm hopeful that there is an appellate process for Charlotte's Web to to take on this matter, to drive this issue to conclusion. Um, but but I find it baffling. I find it baffling that the FDA is is abdicating their duty to protect the health and safety of American citizens. Um, yeah, you know, I have to agree with that. And, you know, I think the DEA has been um, having a dereliction of their own responsibility in terms of how they sort of regulate drugs or their role in it, too. You know, and when I think of safety, I think of GMP. So, so David, you know, you, you assess a lot of companies, you know, if CBD could be sold as a dietary ingredient, do you think it would make your job easier, you know, being a GMP guy out there? I think in in many ways it would uh, from the perspective of providing folks with clear guidance on what to do. Um, I think the guidance already exists though, and folks should just be following what natural health products and dietary ingredients are required to adhere to, which I think to your point, Mark, you know, Charlotte's Web is one of the companies that actually does a pretty stand-up job in that regard. Um, You know, my... When I was reviewing kind of the article, and you know, so I didn't dive too deep into the FDA's response, and I would, you know, the curiosity side in me um, would love to know a bit more. You know, the quote I think I'll pull is, you know, evidence on a general history of use was vague, did not provide an adequate description of the cannabis preparations, e.g., the composition. Um, and for that, I come back to what's the specifications of the product, and that's you know, from a GMP or just a basic quality standpoint, is step one, defining what the specifications are in your product, what's in there and what's not. Um, I know the FDA says, you know, is looking for very detailed information regarding that. Uh, I've seen what Epidiolex has had to go through in terms of their data, uh, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of data points, right? Um, it's not that robust for a dietary ingredient, but um, I, I see there being some sort of failure on the FDA side to say this is adequate, adequate, Adequate. There we go. Um, say that a few times. It's been a long morning, but uh, there seems to be some issue there, and I, I don't, I don't agree with uh, the point that they just fail to. Um, they just continue to deny it. Meanwhile, to Mark's point, we've got a market in all fifty states. 
Yeah, and I, I, I have to agree with that, Dave, because it seems like we have the tools um, and the talent, you know, GMP, we have track and trace software, you know, activating federal resources could be a really good thing. Um, Kim, I'd like to go to you. You know, do you agree with uh, David and Mark's comments? Uh, do you have your own take on this announcement? Um, yeah, um, sure. I think, um, you know, combining what Mark and David so eloquently put, I would take it a step back and say it begins with just the history and, and overall thought towards cannabis in this country, that this is just in that vein. We are not taking steps to move away from that. We are doing what we always do, and that's failing to act. This isn't a matter of can we or how should we? It's like, let's just do it. You know, someone say yes, pull the trigger, and let's go. Um, so I'm I'm not impressed with the FDA about this. Um, you know, there's way too much money spent on saying no to cannabis instead of saying yes and figuring things out uh, that are going to benefit us. And as was said earlier, we've got thriving markets for CBD. You can get it at gas stations. Um, you know, who knows what is in those products? I think there's, there's got to be regulation. And it's only frustrating to folks who are actually in this business as well, right? Like they're trying to make a living and, and, and are oftentimes going broke over you know, the promise of uh, a new industry and the failure for that industry to actually thrive. The FDA could step in and really lend a helping hand in so many ways to consumers, to business operators, to communities um, by approving this and getting it through. So I think the failure to act is significant and we've got to, got to change that. Thank you. Um, you know, hearing your comments and Negum, I definitely want to get your input. So I'm just going to punt this to the group, whoever wants to catch it and run up the field. You know, we hear all the time about um, CBD is legal in all 50 states. And it's, it's hard to kind of, it seems like a bit of a paradox to see like the FDA not acting on it, waiting for federal guidance or some sort of federal clarification, but yet we have like the hemp farm bill. Can, um, can someone here help me reconcile this? It's like, paradox in my brain. I think I'm having a bit of cognitive dissonance here. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, the Farm Bill, in essence, legalized the 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 growing, the agricultural aspects of hemp uh, and the use of hemp in agricultural products. But the FDA has a very different mission, uh, as does the DEA. Uh, and so when you're looking at a product like Epidiolex, you're looking at a pharmaceutical product, um, very, very high uh, CBD content to it that was reviewed after extensive studies, hundreds of thousands of pages of, of study material um, and released as a pharmaceutical product. When you're dealing with food supplements, um, as David said, um, you know, the standard should be much lower. Uh, we should be using things like GMP and, and other standards regarding uh, what we would normally find in the supplements marketplace. I, I, uh, to Kim's point, you know, I think there's just this reticence and reluctance to certify, um, let's just say, mainstream cannabis products, for lack of a better term, the non-pharmaceutical, low THC, um, high CBD, or other other cannabinoid products. Um, I, I can't get my head wrapped around it, honestly. Um, other than there's just this this legacy of reluctance to uh, put them into the open marketplace without going through a full blown drug analysis like Epidiolex went through. It's silly because the lower the, the levels of CBD are, are so, so very different than what's in a product like Epidiolex. It's not even funny. Um, 
my main concern is, is again, the health and safety. When you have a regulated marketplace, you've got testing requirements and production requirements like GMP um, that protect consumers. And the longer the FDA continues to drag its feet and, um, uh, and is not pushed to make a decision on these issues, the worse it is for the American consumer. Um, the bigger unknowns there are for companies that are in this space, they have no idea if their, their products will be recalled or banned or, uh, or whatnot. Um, and then, of course, the retailers that are selling these products, that are investing in these products, whether it's the gas station or CVS um, or Walgreens. Uh, that I've noticed having um, topicals, mainly um, CBD topicals. But my supermarket, Sprouts, has CBD teas and sodas and other edible products that are clearly unregulated by the FDA at this point. You know, what kind of risk are they taking from a legal standpoint in selling those products? Or even from a business standpoint, that they may be recalled. So, I mean, that's kind of a potpourri of thoughts answer to your question. It's very potent potpourri. Thank you. Um, uh, Nigam, I want to go to you just to, to round out this article. You know, is there a question you would want to ask the FDA? I mean, you know, the FDA is the gold standard in, in, for most of the world for, for product safety. And, you know, for every one person who loves the FDA, I feel like there's 10 who has something negative to say about it. But, you know, you know, I just want to get your input here because, you know, you've worked in the formulation space. You've worked with the American Chemical Society. Um, you know, what's, what do you hope will happen in the future with this? Well, uh, certainly I agree with the comments that Dave and Mark were making that, you know, what, what do I want for the future? I want it to be, I want people to be able to consume and trust the products they're consuming. This reminds me of a comment Dave made on a recent episode where he said, you're an average consumer and you go to a store and you assume because it's on the shelf at the store that somebody at the state or at the Fed or, at, or at some regulatory body understood what is that thing on the shelf and said, okay, that's safe for a consumer. But in this is one of those cases where it's simply not true. And it's actually kind of interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, smart shops and these kind of gray areas of what you can purchase in, in other countries uh, related to, to substances. And it, it's just kind of weird how the FDA is, is kind of dodging this. I, I always tend to think, and I've done this on the show before, I tend to think of what's happening that we're not seeing. So there's like obvious things that are happening that like, for example, these applications for a new dietary ingredient by reputable companies who have shown a lot of evidence of their reputability are being denied and just kind of pushed to the side. And then we're reading news articles about it. But what is happening that's not in the news? What's happening behind closed doors at the FDA or in Congress? Or I, I don't know with who's, who's making money from farming hemp or from selling products at the gas station and what influence do they have? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of sharing some thoughts, but I, I see Kim nodding a little bit as I'm saying that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, there's, it's, it's very odd because, you know, um, obviously having been affiliated with a company that has sold CBD products since um, 2012 or so, um, you know, there's been a fair share of like, now you're shut down. Now you can't process your credit cards now, you know, issues that have cropped up for that. But then at the same time, you'll see it being sold on Amazon online. 
And that's totally fine, right? Like Amazon isn't getting shut down. So it's a, definitely a question of who, <laughs> who and why, you know, what's going on behind the scenes um, that allows that to take place for some, but not for others. And why this verity, why not? When it is clearly everywhere, you know, why the red tape for others, not for, for all. The only other thing I'll, I'll add is, uh, again, I don't do FDA work, so I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, is there has been a, pro, a proliferation of claims by some unscrupulous CBD companies uh, or other minor cannabinoid companies that have not been proven. And maybe the FDA is um, concerned that if they authorize uh, CBD as, a, as an herbal supplement, they don't have the resources to go after all those companies. Um, I think it's silly. I think they're not abdicating their responsibility to go after those false claims or unproven claims. Um, but maybe it's a resource issue as well. I, I don't know. Yeah, um, I agree with that. And I was trying to remember a quote um, that go, from an author who wrote a book about the FDA. And it was something like, it's not the conversations that happen you know, due to you know, money, influence, or politics, it's the conversations that don't happen for those same reasons. And, and that's where I think we get, get a little nervous is like, you know, we want to engage with this organization. And, you know, you can schedule a listening session with the FDA. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what we should do, you know, is uh, make them listen to our podcast for an hour, just schedule a listening session and, and air some of our questions to them. Um, but, you know, Speaking of like uncertainty of the industry and, you know, regulations and, um, you know, what are businesses going to do? I'd like to transition, Mark, to your article on environmental, social and governance, the perfect storm for the cannabis industry, because this talks about investment. This talks about, you know, this sort of, you know, I'd like to get your take on the article. But when I read it, I felt like there's all these things happening and this could be a really great thing for the industry or it could just it could capsize the boat. And so could you give us the 30,000 foot view of your article? Sure. Before you get into really talking about uh, what is a more nuanced conversation about ESG, environmental, social, and governance, we need to take a step back. In, in this nascent cannabis industry, uh, which I got into five years ago, you know, people were starting to talk about more generally, programmatically corporate social responsibility. And usually that came in two forms. One, in licensing requirements that you have community partnerships. And so companies were um, doing shotgun weddings where they were just giving out money, uh, handing out the Benjamin saying, okay, we've got community partnerships, here's some money, uh, without any real thought to the strategy to that. Or you had um, uh, very uh, high-minded founders that cared about particular issues and wanted to use their cannabis business as a vehicle to also engage in philanthropy. Ver, ver, you know, very well-intentioned leaders, but again, without strategy. So that's where we were five years ago. Skip, skip ahead now where we have this um, growing interest across all industries around ESG. And, and that's a more, less, it's programmatic for sure, but it's also measuring outcomes and it's very analytical in the process. And the reason why it's analytical is because you've got this storm of investors looking for metric information around environmental sustainability, around social impact, especially in light of um, the um, unrest that occurred last summer because of the George Floyd killing uh, across all industries, not just the cannabis industry, but it's certainly more pronounced in the cannabis industry given the, the history of the cannabis industry. Um, 
And then you also have governmental entities across the world starting to require publicly traded companies to disclose um, environmental, social, and governance metrics and policies uh, to their shareholders and to their stakeholders. So that way, investors have a much better idea as to the risks and opportunities of their investments. So whether it's uh, exposure to climate change uh, or uh, lack of diversity in one's board or lack of concepts and principles and governance policies around child labor or slavery uh, or conflict minerals. Uh, So in the cannabis industry, though, we're still stuck in, for the most part, in this age of creating programmatic um, uh, creating programs around sustainability in a silo or creating um, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, or uh, some of the larger companies have, have um, very robust and targeted social impact programs. But for the most part, um, the industry isn't there yet. Uh, my premise and my conclusion is that there is this perfect storm coming right now where investors are demanding this information and some are sitting on the sidelines waiting for this information. We've got a mostly millennial workforce and a mostly millennial customer base, as has been shown by the latest polling, um, that are demanding that companies do better around sustainability and social impact. They want to work for companies that are engaged in these activities. They want to support companies in terms of their consumer purchases. Uh, that engage in these activities. And then you have got governmental regulation starting in Europe right now around ESG metrics. And already the SEC is having hearings about requiring it sometime in the next six to 18 months that publicly traded companies in the United States are going to have to report on this information as well. But the cannabis industry, as I say in my article, um, they're in the eye of a hurricane right now with, with with not so much as even an umbrella right now. You know, that's a great point. And one of the things that I've always struggled with is in some states, the overregulation, it, it seems like, like the overpackaging of materials seems, you know, wasteful. There's got to be a better solution. Um, there's going to be regions in the United States, I think, will be impacted by this because you have to grow the cannabis a certain way. You know, you can't grow it outdoors in the regions where it's good to grow it outdoors. It's, or, you know, do those seasonal grow operations. You have to grow it indoors. And I think that we are seeing this more and more in licensing and applications. How are you going to, you know, be, how are you going to help the environment? What's your impact going to be? But, um, you know, Nigam, both you and I have worked for cannabis companies and been in the field for a while. Um, you know, have you ever worked for a company that addressed any of these issues with the environmental, social, or governance aspect? I imagine the environmental was a big one. Yeah. So, um, I've done a lot of licensing work in California and it's interesting to see the different jurisdictions. So you'll see things like certain jurisdictions want to be cannabis friendly and attract cannabis business. Think about Desert Hot Springs, which um, for clarity, I've, I've never even been to Desert Hot Springs. So I, I'm not, I haven't worked on an application there. I've never been there, but it's a place out in the desert and they made extremely friendly uh, cannabis regulations to attract business. And now, I don't know if there's a bigger business than cannabis in Desert Hot Springs. There's grows there. There's manufacturing there. There's a, a lot of different stuff going on. There's distros out there. Um, there's dispensaries out there to like, so all these weed people working in the industry can buy weed out there. Um, so there's this whole ecosystem growing. But it's like you were saying, Jahan. 
okay, so we want to put up a big grow in the desert. Well, what's your air conditioning bill? Where's the water coming from? California is, along with Colorado and, and the West in general, is facing this really, really intense drought. It's like drought of the last 50 years or 100 years right now. Um, so uh, I, I can't speak specifically to Desert Hot Springs, but um, in a different jurisdiction, which uh, I did work in, there were specifically like waivers for some of the environmental uh, parts of the application process. And I think that um, th these were in like more rural areas, areas that didn't have water issues or pollution issues. So I guess that's for the local regulators to decide where's the boundary between attracting business, which they were attracting a lot of business and between protecting the environment. But I can tell you in those cases, um, uh, licenses, state licenses were received and uh, requirements for the environmental side of it were either waived or pushed down the road. Like, oh, we'll give you the license and do something about this in the next three years. You know, put a solar panel on the roof in the next three years and you can get around it. So um, the other thing I'll say um, is that we also see in the equity programs uh, that you know, you call it an equity program and you issue a license to a person with certain qualifications living in certain neighborhood or having uh, been incarcerated related to a cannabis uh, charge or so forth. But then what happens after is less well kind of regulated, especially in, in some jurisdictions here in California. You hear a lot of stuff about um, equity licenses being bought up, a lot of stuff about um, the the actual license holder being marginalized, however you do that on paper in a kind of a corporate controlling and profiteering kind of way. So, um, Jayhan, I can't even remember your initial question. I've just been kind of just sharing like you, you're like, hey, you're in the industry. Have you seen some stuff? And I'm saying you, to you, yes, I've seen I've seen some stuff. And this, these are um, these are some things I've seen. So um, I don't remember my question either. All, all I can think about now is there's two things in desert hot springs I don't want to see. And that's how laws are made and how they roll their joints. I just, I don't need to see <laughs> those two things. Oh man, um, I do. Uh, sorry. I just want to make one more kind of closing thing. Uh, Cause I, I know other folks have thoughts on the topic um, that like, so having had these experiences and, and like understanding uh, as a person who cares about the environment and, and studied renewable energy uh, at the university level. And as a person who, uh, cares about uh, equity and contributes my own time uh, in some ways to like supporting that in in the in the industry. There there obviously seemed to be a void. So when I saw that uh, Kim and Mark were working on these initiatives at Vicente Cedarburg, I that that really kind of fired me up, and I thought that was so cool. So um and and obviously we've brought them here on the show to discuss. So I'm just I just wanted to kind of say that and say that I'm super curious what Kim and Mark want to share about it. Yeah, me too. I mean, Kim, I'd love to hear more about, um, you know, how can companies be more aggressive when it comes to social equity? Um, are there simple things they can do? Can it be integrated into like their 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 best practices for their business? Um, yeah, could you shed some light question. on it? Sure, that's a great question. Um, I think the first thing that companies can do when it comes to social equity is just get educated on you know, the universe of social equity. Um, we were just in a meeting the other day with a company 
called Cam Acam. Um, just some extremely bright minds thinking about social equity and putting programs together. They're based in the Pacific Northwest. Um, there, one of the things that stuck out from that conversation was that social equity means different things to different people, and it's part of the issue with figuring out how we get social equity to be a thing is um, understanding what the different definitions are for for the various populations that we serve. So taking a look inward at your company and understanding who you are, what your your missions, your values are, and then also understanding where you are as a community and and what the needs are, um, whether that's internal, like your workforce or uh, stakeholders or your external communities um, and, and figuring out you know where can we fill deficits, and then and then how? Um, having that education from executives, I mean, very importantly, the executive level and investor level as well is so important because folks get upset when you play with their money, right? And and if they have this idea that this work in social equity is not value adding, they don't want to do it. They don't want to see their money going to it. It's a waste for them. Um, so there's got to be some sort of connection. To and, and if that's ESG, great, you know. But uh, just again, having that understanding and educate minimum education um, and competency around, you know, why prohibition cannabis um, has led us to where we are now um, is a great place for folks to start. And then I'd love to see a consolidation or a confluence of thought around social equity for operators. We've seen the industry begin to contract, and lots of folks buying up licenses. You just mentioned this a second ago. Um, there are a lot of the, the the varied and many stores are now becoming fewer um, and controlled by a fewer amount of people. I think the social equity space should also kind of reflect that and at least begin to have um, connections throughout. You know, I love to see the the people band together in the way that we did to legalize cannabis and really kind of begin to move the needle uh, together as opposed to this fractured approach that is helpful to the people who are immediately surrounding you. But we're going to have, in short order, a number of social equity class types of licenses in varied in many states across the country. It'd be great if there was some way for them to work um, together in concert for the common good. And I think that's really the way it should be for the cannabis industry overall, right? We're all about this plant, so we should all be working together for the benefit of the plant benefit our communities and kind of move forward in that collective ethos. But that's, yeah, my thoughts on it. That's awesome, Kim. Uh, you know, social equity sounds like a really good idea. Um, you know, and, and it's even true in like academia, you know, I guess I'll say, you know, my, my labs that I've worked in, they've always been a small group of people, but they've always been really diverse most of the time. And we've always had, I feel like I've had more success with the more diverse a team is, whether it's their culture or their experiences. So I feel like that'd be really good for the survival and the ability of the cannabis industry to adapt to new challenges is having as many diverse partnerships as possible, whether it's, you know, people from different cultural backgrounds or different types of businesses, universities, you know, uh, community centers, just, I think, like you said, it's like a network. Um, But, you know, Mark, Mark, I want to give you a chance to jump in here. This is your article after all. Um, Did you have any, any follow-up points? Um, I, I do. With regard to social equity, and, and maybe it was implied in what Kim said, I mean, there is a moral imperative here with regard to social equity and social impact for this industry, given the history of this industry um, and the history of the criminalization of cannabis. Uh, and I think that needs to be the common thread that runs through any kind of federal legalization, any kind of state legalization, any kind of social equity program, that, that there is 
um, not just a business imperative, but a moral imperative. Um, you know, going back to what Jehan said about growing cannabis in, in the desert, the sustainability issues are, are really profound. Uh, they often take a backseat to the social issues in this industry, although we're starting to see more and more reports about the impact of having cultivations in these, um, say, climate-challenged areas of the country where we ordinarily would not be growing cannabis inside a warehouse in, say, Vermont or upstate New York or even in Colorado. Uh, there, there are a few things that, that – there are three things that really that, that, that um, that raises for me. One, uh, it's led to a tremendous amount of R&D, uh, research and development around things like carbon capture uh, or LED lighting. Uh, and I think the cannabis industry is driving a lot of that development in R&D to create more efficient operations because there is such a, um, a, a dark mark on the industry around the energy usage. I think it's um, 10% of the energy usage now in Colorado uh, can be attributed to the to the legal cannabis industry, and that's not even taking into account and, the, the, illicit the other ninety percent is Bitcoin farming, right? It's, or mining. <laughs> a lot of it is a lot of it is crypto. <laughs> I think uh, uh, obviously that's that's still hard to define. Um, but we know from energy bills for le- for regulated cannabis companies how much energy they are using. Uh, but it's leading to all this R and D, uh, everything from like I said, carbon capture to uh, water efficiency. Uh, I mean, which leads to the yeah, second point. Absolutely. Um, you know, just to jump in there for a second, you know, I visited an operation about a year ago and they were doing experiments in their cultivation rooms with different types of lights, including different spectrums of LED lights. And I was really, I mean, I was just like, it was so cool to see them reading the literature and applying this like novel ideas, like, can we do this with less heat? Can we do this with less energy? Um, Maybe if we have 30 foot ceilings, it'll work better. Like just like trying new ideas using um, available data. And so I I hope to see more innovation like that in the industry to address ESG. Yeah, I I geek out on all of that, Jayhan. I've said on, for the last five years, I've sat on the city of Denver's Canvas Sustainability Workgroup, and we're constantly looking at new developments in the the field here in Colorado around R&D. The second is though, as we start to look to federal legalization, I imagine that a lot of these issues will settle itself out. It won't make financial sense to be, for the most part, growing cannabis um, at scale in warehouses. It just, uh, you know, in in Maine <laughs> or or wherever, or in the desert of Arizona or or Nevada. Um, it, it won't make sense from a financial standpoint. We don't do that with tomatoes or bananas or a- any other kind of agricultural product. So. I feel like legalization is going to settle a lot of those issues around sustainability. Kim, you go yeah, ahead, please. I just want to jump in real quick and say, so part of the reason why we don't grow those in outside in Maine and Massachusetts is because we only have one growing season here and it's just not um, amenable <laughs> to growing photos. We do use greenhouses and lots of them. My extended family has a farm um, in Axe, Massachusetts and there's, a pretty big greenhouse for things like that, but they do have outdoor crops. Um, the benefit that they have over cannabis farmers is that they can use pesticides and we can't. Um, there's a very specific um, allowance for what you can and can't use. Anything essentially with an EPA number, anything that's listed with the EPA, you can't use. Um, so it's kind of like, good luck, <laughs> go figure it out. 
outdoor, I mean, it's crazy, you know? And then the other issue is like the more and more we see, this is a little bit off topic, but I definitely want to mention it. The more outdoor crops we see, the more cross-pollination we're going to see, um, which is going to torch people's crops as well. Um, so there are some issues that we have specifically in the North. Um, it's very humid here. Uh, it's very impossible to grow cannabis without having some sort of powdery mildew or something. Um, if you're going outdoors right now in Massachusetts, you're going to have powdery mildew. Just, <laughs> it's guaranteed it's been humid all summer long. Like there's just no avoiding it. So there have to be some advancements um, in terms of what we can do to remediate um, pests and crops, IPM, and also with powdery mildew before we can really begin to consider um, outdoor cultivation as a viable option for at least the more humid states with differing weather patterns. Um, Southern states, maybe not so much, but I will add that I hope if and when we do get to that point within federal legalization, we have people at the table who know what they're talking about. Um, It's high time that we stop regulating cannabis or or allowing cannabis to be regulated by people who don't know about cannabis. There are smarter people, there are better people. I'm not saying that we can't have experts from other industries, but there've got to be some people who know about IPM and, and, and the like. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of people who know things about IPM and what it takes to you know, regulate and standardize things, Dave, you've been quiet, but I want to get that sweet, sweet standard perspective, the ASTM GMP uh, perspective on this, because it seems like you know, ASTM uh, has a D37 cannabis committee, and there's all these different committees on, on training, on cultivation, on um, all these different things. Do they, do they have one on uh, environmental impacts yet? Are those standards incorporated? Um, <laughs> it's funny you say that. So I've, I've got a few thoughts, and I want to make sure Mark still gets to um, educate us on the third point there. But um, so <clears throat> one thing I want to say, you know, as I t- we tie it back, you know, so I, I studied Arctic climate change. That's what I went to school for, undergrad and graduate. So I was extra super excited to see this topic of ESNG. I almost wish we just had uh, the whole podcast to talk about it, right? I mean, it, there's so many issues there and you know, the data is clear from a climate change perspective. Um, but that said, you know, tying into, um, you know, basically good manufacturing practices and quality systems, you know, there's a few things that really kind of stood out that I think, you know, Mark and Kim both, both uh, covered, right? In terms of keywords, you know, strategy, measuring outcomes and then you know, kind of indirectly it was stated like senior management commitment and you know leadership and executive commitment you know strategy uh whether it's esng social equity or just how to operate and build a business um how to construct a facility there's a lack of strategy in this industry um we we have not seen that um there's not and that's a key you know fundamental item in terms of just planning you know, fail to plan, plan to fail. And that that's super important. <clears throat> and measuring outcomes, you know, that's another thing that the industry is, you know, as I think we mature, we'll get there. But, you know, forget ESG for a second. Um, what are we doing to just measure ongoing day-to-day operations? And, op- you know, f- businesses don't know where they're gaps are, where their risks and where their weak points are. So when, you know, you look at Colorado and 15% of final products still fail final product testing for microbials, what what are folks, is that just, all right, no big deal. Yeah, it just, it sucks, right? It just keeps happening. Or are we aware of what's contributing to that? Do we have any data to be able to correct that? Whether it's, you know, facility design, humidity, moisture control, um, you know, 
IPM practices, uh, you know, yeah, we've got all sorts of pesticide limitations and that's a whole nother can of worms that, you know, Kim alluded to, but without that, without measuring outcomes, we're just, I think, I don't know, we should try that. And, you know, that's not going to, that doesn't fly for best business practices. Sure as heck won't fly for ESG. And when investors and board members want actually quantifiable outcomes, not just opinions of what I think we're doing and why it's okay. And that all ties back to senior management leadership commitment, which in quality systems, you know, look at the global standard, ISO 9001. It's been around for 30 plus years. As it's revised every three to five, seven years, you know, there's an increased focus on senior management commitment. And without that, I don't care who you can put the best person in the room to lead these efforts, but if there's not commitment from the top, it falls, right? It falls on deaf ears and that's back to strategy. So, um, you know, I think those are all really important points that, that we need more of. And related to ASTM, um, we actually uh, just this fall um, started launched a sustainability subcommittee. So that was actually recently approved and we'll be there to develop consensus standards around sustainability metrics and everything related to sustainability, which I think can, you know, dive into so many areas. So really excited to see the great work at ASTM's uh, D37 Committee on Cannabis uh, develop, kind of paving that way. Absolutely, David, glad- Dave, thank you. Oh, Mark, yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say, David, I'm glad you brought up ISO because when you're talking about environmental management systems, it brings me directly That's- to my third point, which is um, we're starting to see governmental regulators notice the cannabis industry, environmental regulators in particular. In the last 60 days, there have been no less than three major enforcement actions that have settled for tens of thousands, in one case, $370,000 or nearly $370,000 for really, really stupid, basic environmental compliance issues. Um, because cannabis companies typically, uh, the larger companies do, I know True Leaf has an environmental health and safety department, and, and um, there's other larger MSOs that are starting to actually hire people from outside of cannabis that understand the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, FIFRA, RECRA, the whole alphabet soup of environmental regulation. But when you do an environmental, social, and governance screen, you start to identify where your gaps are and where your risks are. And if you, are, if you don't have an, air, if you have a, an extraction facility and you don't have a VOC air permit, you're a sitting duck. If you are discharging to a, a POTW or publicly owned treatment works, and you're washing, you're, you're, you're flipping a room and you're cleaning your tables and you're using whatever cleaning materials you are and you're washing it down the drain along with nitrates and whatever, whatever other grow media you had and you're not, telling your, you're not measuring it and you're not telling your publicly owned treatment works that this glut of material is coming towards you and you don't have a pre-treatment permit, you're a sitting duck for an environmental enforcement action. Or if you're discharging to a stream directly and you don't have a, an NPDES permit, a national pollutant discharge you know, permit, um, effluent permit. Um, these are all simple, simple environmental laws that have been in, in, in place for 40, 50 years. Uh, and, and so ESG screening can often identify these gaps and risks. Um, but I see a massive enforcement um, action um, uh, coming against a lot of companies in, in the very, very near future. And it's going to cost a lot of companies a lot of money. So that was the third point with regard to ESG. Well, well said, Mark, if I can, you know, yeah, you know, look at ISO 14,000, right, for environmental management systems. There are, we don't have to look, we don't have to create this, we don't have to get super creative, guys. Look at that. There's frameworks, do your due diligence. And, you know, it's a lot more than just, oh, let's follow the MEDs rules. Oh, I have to adhere to that. 
uh, just you're a business, you're operating a business, right? And all those other rules apply to you. OSHA, EPA, yeah, uh, NP, you know, D, circle all the uh, alphabet soup, right? And back to you know, strategy. If folks aren't planning as a business operator, if you don't come in with the right tools and hire the right team, yeah, you're a sitting duck, and it's not an if, but a when. And you know, OSHA, what's their fines? Fifty thousand dollars a day per infraction. Um, it's yeah, we have we haven't seen. Yeah, we've only yet. hit Just the wait. tip of the iceberg with um, like operational inspections and fines for like electrical and training records ah. and documentation. That that is, uh, I think that's even more important to have systems in place. And you know, just to sort of grow in a different direction. And speaking of environmental, you know, mushrooms they they don't take a lot of light to grow. They're they're, they're easy on the environment, and you know. I wonder if we're going to learn some lessons from cannabis that we can apply to mushrooms because reported in Forbes, our third article for this section is a take on the psychedelic mushroom shops reaching the Americas. So the Western hemisphere is going to get its first like brick and mortar psychedelic and functional mushroom store, similar to Amsterdam's smart shops. And if you have some free time, throw that into a search browser. It's pretty amazing. But, um, you know, will people soon be able to, purchase or access magic mushrooms um you know uh, is is our smart shops as they're called in the netherlands or amsterdam a smart move for the west um you know uh nigam i'd like to go to you you know uh we, we talk a lot about psychedelics on clubhouse and on this podcast and you know our colleague dr del potter he's he's been kind of you know put his fist on the table saying psychedelics are not going to be available the same way that cannabis products are. But this article makes me feel that it's expanding into a more sort of easy access to these products. Yeah, so the article is definitely interesting. Uh, it focuses on two things, uh, both of which are, Jehan, as you were saying, where can an average consumer go and buy psychedelic mushrooms or the compounds from psychedelic mushrooms uh, like you think about, it, you can go to the corner store and buy alcohol, or you can go to the dispensary and buy cannabis, right? So, um, one area is in Jamaica, and it focuses on this company Silo uh, Wellness, I believe, uh, which is they're putting a lot of their marbles in the Jamaica basket because uh, they're saying that's the only place in the Western Hemisphere that you can, or that a consumer can purchase and utilize. Uh, psilocybin-containing mushrooms freely without, you know, concern for law enforcement or or whatever. So, I I suppose there's some there's some merit to that. You know, there's uh, always a uh, cutting edge. So, is, is the cutting edge of consumer accessibility to psilocybin mushrooms is Jamaica in the year 2021? You know, okay, so that's a thing that's happening. Um, the other thing that you had mentioned is the smart shop. So there's a different dynamic in Europe, uh, in, in places like the Netherlands and, and some other countries where they have these, these shops are called smart shops. And they're kind of known for being a place where gray area things are sold. We reviewed on a previous episode, uh, some 2C uh, psychedelic drugs that were basically unscheduled. We see this all the time, right? With, uh, the spice and synthetic cannabinoids. 
um, from, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and then 10 years before that, you were seeing these uh, modifications to basically MDMA to make these other type of party drugs in this 2C class. And I'm, I'm simplifying this from a chemical perspective. But you, so you saw these uh, drugs, which you make a minor tweak. And it goes from being something that's on a schedule one or schedule two, it's illegal to being unscheduled. And then now it's sold in these gray areas and these smart shops. So anyways, uh, w- one thing to clarify is in the smart shops, they're not actually allowed, I suppose, to sell uh, mushrooms, dried mushrooms, but they do sell in some of them what is what are known as truffles, which is basically a chocolate, which has been infused with psilocybin. So um uh, so so you, you pay you pay fifty dollars for a piece of chocolate. It comes with free mushrooms. Is that how it works? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if it's quite like the the DC cannabis law where you, you buy a t shirt and you get some weed, but um, I don't know if it's quite that bad. But uh, there's definitely it's definitely a gray area. But they are you know these smart shops been around for a long time and and they're kind of allowed to operate. So, anyways, I I think what this really goes to, and and I'm really curious to get Mark's opinion because. Uh, we actually brought this article on the show uh, following a conversation that that uh, Mark and I had previously about what is kind of the acceptable or the, I don't know if acceptable is the right word because we all have our own acceptability, but w- basically what is the future outlook? The conversation Mark and I had was, are there going to be psilocybin dispensaries are you gonna be able to just go buy mushrooms like you can just go to the cannabis dispensary and just buy mushrooms for their for you know consumer recreational use and um you know this article is showing that it's already happening it's been happening in europe in these smart shops for some time um jamaica is being open with their liberal policies and it's kind of like we're talking about jurisdictions in california being kind of liberal with their environmental policies to attract cannabis business and we're seeing jamaica being like liberal with their you know psilocybin policies to attract business to attract uh psychedelics tourists to attract companies like silo wellness to um put up uh infrastructure and jobs there in in their in their country, in their community. So um, I really just gave a lot of background. I, I'm not saying it's good or it's bad, but um, Mark, I, I'm super curious what, what you think about all this. Yeah, I'm very conflicted. Uh, let me just say at the outset, I have seen um, various psychedelic products uh, change lives for the positive. Uh, I've seen marriages saved. I've seen people overcome trauma. Uh, I've seen people become more productive in their lives through the use of psychedelics. And our law firm certainly works with the industry. I don't know how it's going to play out at the end of the day. Uh, but I do know this. Uh, as we delve more into this, and, I, and I'm here in Denver, which is the first city to have decriminalized uh, the use of uh, or the possession of psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin. And um, I, I know that there are health and safety issues out there that a regulated market could help, uh, whether that's testing, um, removal of impurities, um, clean rooms, uh, using, for example, GMP uh, to produce these products. Uh, and that will all benefit an industry, uh, as well as the people that would find benefit from psychedelics. That said, I have also seen lives permanently damaged by the use of psychedelics. Um, in particular, one very traumatic um, schizophrenic episode where the person, and this happened back in 1997, um, and that person is still living now with their parents and is a permanent 
schizophrenic uh, from trying psychedelics for the first time. Um, so it can have incredibly damaging effects. You know, I'm a firm believer that psychedelics belong in the medic. It belongs in the toolbox of medical uh, professionals that that work with patients to utilize these products in a very positive way. Um, if I had my dithers, they would be utilized under doctor supervision and only under doctor supervision. They would not be available in dispensaries. I don't know that my view is going to win out the day. Um, you know, I'm a 53-year-old man that's seen a lot in 53 years in this way. Um, but I know the industry is moving very, very quickly, and there's money being thrown into this industry. There are legal companies right now receiving investment dollars in Canada uh, that are becoming um, publicly traded companies on stock exchanges around the world. Um, I don't know where this is going to end up. I don't know if, if Pfizer and, and the large pharmaceutical companies are going to win this battle or if it's going to be the cannabis industry dispensary operators that are going to win this battle. Um, I just know that there need to be some guardrails put on this, unlike um, uh, the cannabis industry because of the impact that it can seriously have, unlike cannabis, on people's psyche and lives. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we have to remember our brains are capable of amazing things. They're, they're, they have a lot of plasticity. They can adapt. They can heal. They can get damaged. And you know, when we start messing around with the beehive, we want to be sure that we're setting ourselves up for success. And um, you know, and regarding you know, clinical supervision, I think that's a great idea for the vast majority of people. But I also, I'm conflicted too, because I feel like there should be a grandfathering in of ancestral ceremonial use somehow, but there needs to be guardrails and not just like 50 pages of warnings on every truffle chocolate you buy, because nobody's going to read that. But, you know, we have to really think about how do we have a, an adult conversation about educating people about this and proper use, um, you know, because some people may not be able to go to a clinical office to use it. So there's been some discussion of apps and teleconferencing for people who are taking psychedelics. It's just a very interesting world right now. Um, you know, Kim, I, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on psychedelics. You know, this is something that's typically, you know, there's like something like 200 species of psychedelic plants out there and fungi. Um, it's, it's typically from, you know, South America and, you know, it seems like a lot of white people love psychedelics. Um, and I'm just wondering if, uh, you know, how do we learn from cannabis and balance out you know, sort of moral responsibility, social equity in the psychedelic space? Well, I think, as you mentioned, different uses of psychedelics. And I think that's an important piece of this, that there are ceremonial uses. Um, there are also like ibogaine's being used in treatment and therapy for addiction. Um, and that's something that's increasing in popularity and prevalence now. Something that was definitely like, are you kidding me? You know, 10, 15 years ago, but it's now you've pay people to do this. Um, and I know folks who have. Um, but if we're talking about local communities, I, I kind of wonder what the rates of usage are like across different demographics. What does that look like? Um, does a person of color using cannabis get the same treatment if they're caught illegally with it? I'm not cannabis, but psychedelics. Um, if they're caught with it illegally as a person who is not um, BIPOC, are there the same disparities and, and over-enforcement we see with cannabis? Um, does that apply to the psychedelic community. So I would love to, I don't, I haven't seen that data. Um, I have an idea 
if if I had to guess, I might think that you know it's more prevalent usages among white males and drops off um, as you as you go around. But you know, it, it that's something I think we need to we need more data on um, to see how it'll play out in terms of legalizing it and and what that looks like. Is there a social equity program for for psychedelics when it comes into play? Um, yeah. Certainly, education is going to be key here whether it's for the communities, uh, operators that are selling it, regulatory bodies, or the communities of people who are using it. Um, I think just understanding what it is, it's so nebulous right now. It's just this thing that people take and they trip, right? At least to a lot of folks, that's what it is. Um, so to have an understanding, and this is what we had to do with cannabis. We had to educate and that's how we got things to where they are now. Um, there needs to be more shared data uh, and there needs to be more just discussion and normalizing of of this as a resource in general. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're running short on time for this segment. So Dave, I want to just see if you have any closing comments for this article. Are you hoping to uh, do some GMP assessments at mushroom facilities in the near future? You know, Pennsylvania grows something like 30% of the United States mushrooms. So yeah. you know, it could be busy for a while. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll briefly weigh in then um, recognizing time. You know, I think uh, that that kind of comes back to, you know, the safety uh, and consistency in which we create these products. And uh, ultimately, that ties back to the access. And uh, I think, you know, Kim and Mark did a pretty darn good job at, you know, summarizing some of the challenges we see there and, and things we need to consider so that we don't um, get ourselves in an unintended place um, regarding kind of marginalized folks that maybe benefit from it could benefit from the most, the historical considerations. And then of course, you know, the guidance regarding, you know, clinicians and, you know, qualified individuals to, you know, lead these treatments because there's high opportunity for significant benefits, as Mark pointed out. And then on the equal end of the spectrum, you know, these really devastating effects. So these need to be carefully administered um, so they don't go backwards. Absolutely. And I just wanted to say one last thing. I think the the rates of use across different communities is such a great idea. We have it for everything. We know about how people use tobacco and cannabis together. And we'll, we'll talk about that at our game today across different communities. So it just makes sense to get that data about mushrooms. So if there's a grad student listening to this, reach out to Kim Napoli. Uh, she could be your thesis advisor, help you uh, apply <laughs> for that sweet, sweet NIDA grant. All right, that wraps up our popular literature coverage. And we'll be back after a short break with Rapid Fire Science. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. Our first article is entitled Cannabis-Induced Oceanic Boundlessness and was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology. This study explored this mystical-like experience of oceanic boundlessness, which is typically characterized by psychedelics, but the researchers started to explore cannabis-induced oceanic boundlessness. And, you know, if you know your history, um, the history that's thousands of years old, you know, cannabis was used by ancient religions for these purposes, often combined with other drugs. The, the compounds on the cannabis plant activate 
much more than just CB1 and CB2 receptors, the cannabinoid receptors is a whole bunch of targets they have, including serotonin receptors. There's a whole family there. And, and as if you've been paying attention to this podcast, you know that a lot of psychedelics target serotonin receptors as well. So uh, Nigam, I'd like to go to you to get your response to this fascinating article. I know you're usually a numbers guy. You look at you know how many people are in the study. Do you, do you trust it? Um, was it just a survey? Uh, so you know, give us the two cents on this uh, article. Yeah. Um, so I believe I, I read it like a couple of weeks ago, but I believe it was a survey. But I'm going to take a little bit different angle on this um, than than hitting the numbers too much. The thing that I really liked about this article was that it brings up this topic of high doses of cannabis, particularly THC of what we know so far, inducing a psychedelic experience. And that psychedelic experience having potential benefits for mental health. And that's in the exact same vein we talk about psilocybin and LSD and these other psychedelics and the benefits for mental health. So I've been saying this out loud in public for like three years now that to me, cannabis THC is a low grade psychedelic. And, you know, so yeah, you got to take kind of a lot of it, but um, you can have really intense uh, and, and um, meaningful experiences. And to, to just speak to the title of the article, they say this oceanic boundlessness, um, being one with the universe, being one with other living things and, and this, this feeling. Um, they're saying that that can be achieved with cannabis, and that's a similar feeling that can be achieved with some of the other uh, psych- classic psychedelics that target uh, serotonergic receptors, right? So, um, yeah, so that's that's why I brought the article to the show. Um, I, that's something that I believe, and it's not discussed much. It's often we see people putting cannabis and psychedelics into silos, and there, there's crossover, in, in my opinion, and this article seems to think the same thing. I would just jump in and add here that I think this is interesting because there is history of cannabis being used to achieve deep meditative states. Um, and if anyone here listening or um, sitting alongside of me on this uh, panel knows about meditation, it's about the centering of self, the focus on breath, and using that to transcend where you are at present. Um, and I think that in itself, if you've ever been close to that state or in that state, then you've experienced this. You know, I don't know that we need to be talking about psychedelic experiences and, and that requires an element of visuals to come. I mean, I think that there's very many ways in which you can experience um, psychedelics uh, and what effect they have on you. And I don't actually think that it requires a significant amount of cannabis to get there. I think cannabis can be a catalyst t- towards that, um, maybe less in a different way than, than psychedelics themselves are. Um, but yeah, I would just offer that. I think, I think there's truth to this and um, that it's more accessible <laughs> to the common person than maybe is implied in this article. Absolutely. You know, one thing that I kind of have an issue with this article is nomenclature. I feel like the effects of THC just change whenever researchers feel like calling it something else. It's a high, it's intoxicating, it's euphoric. Now it's oceanic boundlessness, which, you know, sounds like something Carl Sagan would say. Um, but uh, David, I want to like go to you real quick and just talk about nomenclature 
Um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, I am get confused because are they talking about the high from THC here? Is this something else? I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing, but it, it's under different, I guess, uh, environments, but maybe you could speak to a little bit to nomenclature and sh should we standardize our description of THC's effects? You know, that's, I'll try to make it more exciting than dry because, you know, standards and you know, nomenclature terminology can be a really dry topic, right? But it's so important for all the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, what, is, you know, I had to Google oceanic boundlessness. I don't know that there is a standard, uh, a, a term that has its origins in conversation between Sigmund Freud and probably somebody else. So it's a quick Google search, but, you know, yeah. And are we talking about just THC, right? Because I don't think that's actually accurate. This is not isolated TH, isolated purified THC that's causing these effects. We know from the clinical data in terms of like Marinol and the other you know, synthetically pure isolates, you know, that are derived that there's a very different effect versus, you know, the ensemble or entourage effect from the cannabis plants derived medicine, which has sure primary constituent THC, but what about all the other ones? So what are we actually talking about here? And defining that from a specifications and then attributing a, and a standardly recognized, yeah, whether it's psychotropic, psychedelic, high, what are we actually talking about here, right? And I think that's back to everything in terms of being able to make an apples to apples comparison. So uh, it's, it's important, I think, to be critical of that. Thank you, David. You know, Mark, there's a question I, I want to ask you, but you can ignore it, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. <laughs> and it's, will the phrase warning, this product may cause oceanic boundlessness potentially be required on cannabis products in the future? Because maybe someone will like be like, I got seasick on my oceanic boundlessness and I'm going to sue you. So we got to add this warning to products. You know, I don't, I don't know anything about oceanic um, boundlessness. What I do know is that like psychedelics, um, cannabis can can cross the blood-brain barrier, and um, and for some people have very intense psychedelic-like experiences. I will say, in 1989, I was in Amsterdam, um, and I went to get some space cake or whatever it was. And at the time, they weren't they it wasn't mushrooms at all. It was purely cannabis, and um, I had a psychedelic, a very negative psychedelic experience that night, trying to get back into Bob's youth hostel before they closed the door that night. Um, and I thought I was, I thought I was having a psychedelic experience. And I know that I only took cannabis that night. Um, and so when I read this article, I was like, yeah, no, duh. Um, you know, what I didn't know about this article is that it could be used in a positive way, like psychedelics could be. Uh, at very high doses of cannabis. And that part I find very interesting. And I'll be curious to see as more and more data is developed around um, this area. Absolutely. And to transition to our next article, you know, I wonder if using the term oceanic boundlessness makes people feel more comfortable with cannabis use and describing its effects. And because our next article is about pediatric use and it's a very interesting article about entitled Cannabis Use in Pediatric Cancer Patients. What are they reading? A review of the online literature. And this study basically found that the overall quality of a, much of the information found online is considered quote unquote satisfactory. Um, and a lot of articles print a pro-cannabis opinion. And so as we're you know, zeroing in on exactly what cannabis is doing in different conditions, um, I, I found this article very interesting. Um, I always like these articles when they go to the internet and researchers look at what people are posting, what people are reading. 
I found it uh, very, very fascinating. Um, you know, Kim, I'd love to get your thoughts on this article about pediatric cannabis use. Um, some people say no way. Some people say sometimes. Some people seem to be really for it. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think this is definitely a proceed with caution area, but the, the data is very surprising and very promising here. Yeah, it is. I mean, if we're talking about pediatric, onco- well, let me step back and say this affects me personally. My um, then seven-month-old, now one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Shay, was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia last October, um, again, when she was seven months old, and was immediately admitted into the ICU to get three blood transfusions to save her life and start chemotherapy immediately. Um, when we started chemo, what was said to us was, now there are risks, and you're always told about the risk, and you got to sign contracts and waivers and whatnot. Um, the biggest risk to her at that time was the cancer that she had. So that the chemo could potentially kill her was less of a risk than what she was currently facing as a health crisis. Now, they're telling us all about the chemotherapy and the drugs that be used to save her life. And we were asking about cannabis and they could not tell us about cannabis. They didn't know about cannabis. There was, there had been an expert at the hospital who had left and um, the new person who was in charge of that or who was now most knowledgeable came to inquire of us about cannabis. So there we are in the ICU talking about cannabis and giving education. And that didn't really feel like the most comfortable position to be in, you know, where I'm standing in there shell-shocked from this diagnosis and now having to explain cannabis to the people who I'm I'm expecting to save lives, right? Um, so that's issue number one. But um, the main issue that I see is that cannabis is not readily offered as a treatment for um, cancer, pediatric. In some cases it is if you're terminal and if the doctor knows about it, um, but it's not a first line therapy when it should be. If you're faced with things that you know are toxic, that you know are lethal, why is cannabis not being offered as something that uh, is palliative, um, and uh, actual, can actually be a primary treatment as is indicated in this article. It's also troubling when looking at this article, um, the negative side of it is like, well, it's either euphoria. Like there are things that are potentially good psychoactive or maybe they're getting anxiety, which is not good for kids who are going through this treatment. Any kind of disruption to their physical is terrible and it's terrible to watch as a parent. So you really do um, want to look out for that. But it's, again, not lethal. You know, discomfort is is kind of a part of is a part of chemotherapy treatment and cancer treatment, um, but uh, we're not looking at death, and I think that's something that really needs to be spelled out and and should make this as a cannabis as a therapy um, a prime line for kids, particularly when there are also um, cancer killing pieces of cannabis, right? Like that's something that you can use the different countries, they're using cannabis to target the specific genetics for types of cancer so that, um, you know, you can use it as a therapy, not only as something to support the other therapies that are being given. I don't want to monopolize the time, but I do, I think there, I I mean, I have enormous support for this. I wish it it were more common and a regular part of the pharmacopoeia like it used to be. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I teach a class uh, for the University of the Sciences in Philly called Supply Chain. It's part of the certificate course. And I made the students uh, pitch, like write a pitch deck for a novel cannabis company, like a new cannabis company. And I got this amazing one that this article, you know, it's just serendipitously, but one of the students proposed a dispensary 
that focuses, that are specialized for pediatric populations, just for pedi- and, and in states where they allow, you know, pedi- pediatric populations. Um, you know, Kim, I just would like, is that something you would like to see? I mean, I, I thought this was a really neat idea. I haven't seen that before. Um, it is, yes, specifically because if there was one entity that, like, you were at Children's Hospital in Boston, so many people come to Children's Hospital in Boston from all around the world to get treatment, um, and St. Jude's as well, but locally, uh, Boston. And we have legal cannabis here for medical. Um, it's possible to go to a dispensary. We also have adult use, but we have... Um, you can get a medical card for a child. There are sanctions um, and prescriptions for that. It would, but what, what's not known is one that there's this opportunity. Parents don't know that um, how to go about doing it. And then when they do do that, like where do we go? You know, do we just go to the place that's closest, or is there a space that's specifically catering to kids? And what parents need in that moment is education. So if there was one center that was dedicated to that, I mean, I think it would make the most sense to have like Dana Farber and Children's Hospital, the Jimmy Fund Clinic match up and these, you know, or whatever location you happen to be in, Children's Hospital partnering with um, the regulatory authority for the state for cannabis that that governs medical cannabis and really kind trying to develop specific guidance for medical providers and for uh, cannabis operators and for the chemotherapy centers so that there is a consensus of opinion and thought for everyone who's participating in this space. That is, that I would have found the most helpful. And I can I know that other parents in my position would also. Yeah, absolutely. I love your your point about the the hospitals. There actually there is a St. Jude's, a very large one, just down the road in Mississippi from the federal government's cannabis grow. It seems like a missed opportunity there to uh, do some studies. It's a driving distance. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, did you have any comments you'd like to share? I know you're typically a GMP guy. Um, yeah, you know, I, from the data side, and I, I enjoyed reading this article um, for for and for you know, kind of discuss a couple of takeaways that I got out of it. Which, when you look at what they talk about in terms of the pro cannabis articles, the summary of that, and the anti cannabis articles, is I think they described it in the discussion and summary. Um, you know, the pro cannabis side, you know, is more likely to include anecdotal stories of success. That's one thing they called out and less likely to be backed up by research beyond the author. And I say that with the caveat at the end, um, where the anti-cannabis articles, you know, were quoted as saying being of higher quality with extensive knowledge. And that relates back to, you know, the historical challenges, right? And the prohibition on research. So what's NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which funds the majority of these grants allowed to do? They're only able to fund research. Um, maybe I'm probably getting the exact terms wrong, but it's if it's focused on from an abuse or a risk standpoint, not from a benefit standpoint. So we're already the the data has been biased, right? And despite that inherent bias, the article still overwhelmingly comes back and says there are a lot of benefits there, and um, we should be considering this. And those reviews were generally rated yeah, satisfactory, good, or excellent. Um, so we need. To you know, I like to be more solutions oriented than just kind of calling out all the problems that I think we're we're good at doing right now. Um, but we need to put that caveat in there, recognize that when folks review that this this article, um, recognizing how limited they are, we are, and the ability to look at great research, um, and then you know that ties back into the medical providers' lack of education that you know Kim 
pointed out so accurately in terms of, you know, that lack of information that they're provided with. I mean, why is Kim as, you know, a background as an attorney with a child with, you know, diagnosed leukemia, having to educate the physicians on something that has a, you know, such little risks from harm, you know, it's not, there's no death associated with cannabis. And why is that, you know, I couldn't agree more with Kim's point. So I hope that, you know, we can all take that into context and learn from it and recognize that U.S. Pharmacopeia is doing work. They have a cannabis expert panel. They published the monograph until 1943, I believe, on cannabis as a medicine for almost 80 years. So this is not, this is not hogwash. This is, um, this needs to be more importantly researched. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, just real quick, you know, for the listener, when I, when I look at pro-con data about cannabis, I, I don't really think of it as pro-con. When I, when I see s- studies about side effects or um, abuse potential risks, that's, that has another name in pharma. That's called safety data. And you always want safety data to know the risks to navigate uh, the product for the best possible outcome. So you know, I don't always take what people might call con data from the pro-con argument as, as a bad thing. It's, it's actually very informative to know how safe this is and what the risks are. Uh, but yeah. Kim, please. Yeah, I just wanted to jump back in and kind of put a human face on this because I think, and I know from past experience when I was not a parent of a cancer child or a momcologist, um, that I had this idea that you're just talking about curing the disease with cannabis or with chemo um, and that chemo sucks and it makes you nauseous. Like I just do these general things about it. Having been through it and watched it happen, um, it's just so much worse. Like it is so much worse than you ever could actually imagine. And it it's not just about curing it. Like that's a nice thing to do. <laughs> if you can cure your cancer, that's a nice thing to have happen, but there's so many steps you have to take before there and you truly never know if you'll actually get there. Um, I don't know what cured means, like that you don't die from cancer someday, you know, and, and when we finally get there, what would Jay's like 75, then I can say she's been cured. Um, I know there's a clinical term and it's usually five years post-treatment or three years post-treatment or whatever, but it can still come back. So what we're really talking about is quality of life and, and the quality of life and care during your treatment it's so terrible. I've seen kids have their skin peel off because of chemotherapy. Um, it's, you know, horrible, horrible things that have happened. So when I'm looking at, okay, I've got to pump this drug directly into my child's heart. It's going to make her nauseous. It's going to make it so that I have to put on gloves to touch her for the entire duration and 48 hours post-treatment. I can't change her diaper without these gloves because I can get cancer from it. Um, then I'm thinking that she should have cannabis because um, that's going to help her not feel as nauseous. It's going to keep her weight up. It's going to make it so that she can eat and digest and not be in pain so that she can withstand the treatments that she's getting that are designed to save her life. So to hear that it's not an option or people are like, we don't know, but we're going to give her this, this cool, this toxic blue colored stuff directly into her heart that could easily kill her in the next 48 hours. It's crazy that it's not even an option. So I, I'm just hoping to humanize it. September is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, and I feel like it's, I'm just doing my part to to raise awareness and um and try to advocate for some more support for overall for these kids. And I strongly believe in cannabis, so I hope there's a way to kind of uh, get this into people's heads and make a push for additional um, additional regulation around the treatment for kids. Thank you, Kim. And if you want to send us a link to that, we'll put it in the show notes for the listener. 
to check out the um, September focus on pediatric patients. Thank sure. you so much for that background. I feel that these um, putting a human face on things is, is so important. If we didn't put a human face on seizures, um, we wouldn't have epidiolex right now where it is. And so I think that these things are so important to recognize and to really fight for. So, um, uh, so, so thank you. But uh, Nigam, uh, did you want to comment on this article? I want to circle back to you real quick before we go to the game. Oh, uh, no, I was just going to echo your, your thoughts, Jayhan. Uh, Kim, really just appreciate you sharing. I think um, when we have these potent, potent topics, you know, children, uh, cancer, cannabis, drug law, um, healthcare systems, parenthood, just social inequities. Social, yeah, it, yeah. it just um, it, it's um, we we just really appreciate you sharing your story. You know, this is how people learn about it. This is how people. This is how other people who are in tricky situations and don't have a big sport network or don't you know have a lot of education. Like this is how this is a resource to people to learn. So, um, anyways, and, uh, so yeah, I just want to say thank you, Kim, before we went to the next segment or thanks for the opportunity to talk about it. Absolutely. All right, listener, that'll be about it for the research discussion. We'll take a short break and come back with our game for this episode. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. This game is called Three Quotes and a Lie. I took the article entitled Smoking Tobacco Along with Marijuana Increases Symptoms of Cannabis Dependence, published in the DAD journal, Drug and Alcohol Dependence, in 2008. So I'm going to read four quotes to my panelists. Three of them are directly from the article, and one of them is made up, did not appear in the article. I hope you can figure out which one is not a quote from the article. So the first choice, A, this finding suggests that rather than smoking joints while alone and blunts in groups, the average Harlem South Bronx smoker simply prefers blunts for all occasions. B, preparation of this paper was supported by a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. C, as an additional part of the practice ritual, blunt users also sometimes pass around tobacco, cigarette, or cigarillo blunt chaser, just as a black and mild or tiparillo immediately after the blunt is finished. Or is it D, marijuana does not reduce nicotine withdrawal symptoms? So, gang, what do you think? I'm going with A. As, a, going false, with- as a false one, right, Kim? Yeah, correct. I kind of think so, that too. I think people in the Bronx smoke joints too. So we have so far we have two votes for this finding suggests that rather than smoking joints while alone and blunts in groups, the average Harlem South Bronx smoker simply prefers blunts for all occasions. It's hard to believe a researcher <laughs> would write that in a paper, right? <laughs> right. It just seems uh, incredibly specific. <laughs> yeah. I I hope that A is the incorrect answer. Is that your final choice, Dave? 
I'll, I'll commit. All right, will, Mark. I'll commit to A as well. I, oh, I, I don't see don't a researcher putting that. No, no, no. That was my choice. <laughs> I, I, okay. I don't believe a researcher would put that in a paper. I don't think we've ever had consensus on, on wow. two truths, three truths, and a lie before. But well, whatever. I hope we're not wrong. All right. No. Well, let's go for the big reveal. So let's start with I'm B. Nervous. Preparation of this paper was supported by a grant from the National Institute on Drug Abuse. If you think that this is a very common thing to find in a drug research paper, well, you're right. It is. It was definitely in the paper. So let's let's go to C, uh, which was as an additional part of the practice ritual, blunt users sometimes pass around a tobacco cigarette, blah, 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 immediately after the blunt is finished. Um, so if this one seemed outlandish and a little weird and, and poorly worded, well, it was actually in the article. This is directly copied and pasted. So let's move along to A, the one that everyone thought was just, you know, didn't belong in a paper. It was too hard to believe. And this quote absolutely appeared word for word in the article entitled Smoking Tobacco Along with Marijuana Increases Symptoms of Cannabis Dependence. They absolutely wrote this sentence. This finding suggests that rather than smoking joints while alone and blunts in groups, the average Harlem South Bronx smoker simply prefers blunts for all occasions, which means that D, marijuana does not reduce nicotine withdrawal symptoms is the false one. They actually uh, said the opposite in their paper. They went on to talk about how cannabis may actually help um, reduce some of the nicotine withdrawal symptoms, hence why it's used together. Um, so, well, <laughs> are you guys surprised by that, that this one? Is, yeah, they're going to find out that this is wrong when, when New York opens up its legal stores and all of the, <laughs> yeah. the pre-rolls are flying off the shelves. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this was a grad student walking around with a clipboard, walked up to someone smoking a blunt, said, hey, do you do this all the time? They're like, yeah. And they're like, okay, data. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Wrong. Well, wow. All right. Well, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer for mixing and editing the show. Thank you to our podcast cover artist for crafting the custom artwork for each episode. And thank you to my very smart and talented guests for joining us today. 